Chapter thirty eight of the White Company. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The White Company by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter thirty eight of the Homecoming to Hampshire. It was a bright July morning, four months after that fatal fight in the Spanish Barranca. A blue heaven stretched above, a green rolling plain undulated below, intersected with hedgerows and flecked with grazing sheep. The sun was yet low in the heaven, and the red cows stood in the long shadow of the elms, chewing the cud and gazing with great vacant eyes at two horsemen who were spurring it down the long white road which dipped and curved away back to where the towers and pinnacles beneath the flat-topped hill marked the old town of Winchester. Of the riders one was young, graceful, and fair, clad in plain doublet and hosen of blue Brussels cloth, which served to show his active and well-knit figure. A flat velvet cap was drawn forward to keep the glare from his eyes, and he rode with lips compressed and anxious face, as one who has much care upon his mind. Young as he was, and peaceful as was his dress, the dainty golden spurs which twinkled upon his heels proclaimed his knighthood, while a long seam upon his brow and a scar at his temple gave a manly grace to his refined and delicate countenance. His comrade was a large red-headed man upon a great black horse, with a huge canvas bag slung from his saddle-bow, which jingled and clinked at every movement of his steed. His broad brown face was lighted up by a continual smile, and he looked slowly from side to side, with eyes which twinkled and shone with delight. Well might John rejoice, for was he not back in his native Hampshire? Had he not Don Diego's five thousand crowns rasping against his knee, and, above all, was he not himself? now squire to Sir Alan Edrickson, the young Suckman of Minstead, lately knighted by the sword of the Black Prince himself, and esteemed by the whole army as one of the most rising of the soldiers of England. For the last stand of the company had been told throughout Christendom, wherever a brave deed of arms was loved, and honours had flowed in upon the few who had survived it. For two months Alan had wavered betwixt death and life, with a broken rib and a shattered head. Yet youth and strength and a cleanly life were all upon his side, and he woke from his long delirium to find that the war was over, that the Spaniards and their allies had been crushed at Navarretta, and that the prince had himself heard the tale of his ride for succour, and had come in person to his bedside to touch his shoulder with his sword, and to ensure that so brave and true a man should die if he could not live within the order of chivalry. The instant that he could set foot to ground, Alan had started in search of his lord. But no word could he hear of him, dead or alive. And he had come home now sad-hearted, in the hope of raising money upon his estates, and so starting upon his quest once more. Landing at London, he had hurried on with a mind full of care, for he had heard no word from Hampshire since the short note which had announced his brother's death. "'By the rood!' cried John, looking around him exultantly. 
where have we seen since we left such noble cows such fleecy sheep grass so green or a man so drunk as yonder rogue who lies in the gap of the hedge ah john alan answered wearily it is well for you but i never thought that my homecoming would be so sad a one my heart is heavy for my dear lord and for aylward and i know not how i may break the news to the lady mary and to the lady maud if they have not yet had tidings of it john gave a groan which made the horses shy it is indeed a black business said he but be not sad for i shall give half these crowns to my mother and half will i add to the money which you may have and so we shall buy that yellow cog wherein we sailed to bordeaux and in it we shall go forth and seek sir nigel Alan smiled, but shook his head. "'Were he alive, we should have had word of him here now,' said he. "'But what is this town before us?' "'Why, it is Rumsey,' cried John. "'See the tower of the old grey church, and the long stretch of the nunnery. "'But here sits a very holy man, and I shall give him a crown for his prayers.' Three large stones formed a rough cot by the roadside, and beside it, basking in the sun, sat the hermit with clay-coloured face, dull eyes, and long withered hands. With crossed ankles and sunken head he sat, as though all his life had passed out of him, with the beads slipping slowly through his thin yellow fingers. Behind him lay the narrow cell, clay-floored and damp, comfortless, profitless, and sordid. Beyond it there lay amid the trees the wattle-and door-put of a labourer, the door open, and the single room exposed to the view. The man, ruddy and yellow-haired, stood leaning upon the spade wherewith he had been at work upon the garden patch. From behind him came the ripple of a happy woman's laughter, and two young urchins darted forth from the hut, bare-legged and towsy, while the mother, stepping out, laid her hand upon her husband's arm and watched the gambols of the children. The hermit frowned at the untoward noise which broke upon his prayers, but his brow relaxed as he looked upon the broad silver piece which John held out to him. "'There lies the image of our past and of our future,' cried Alan, as they rode on upon their way. "'Now, which is better, to till God's earth, to have happy faces round one's knee, and to love and be loved, or to sit forever moaning over one's own soul like a mother over a sick babe?' "'I know not about that,' said John for it casts a great cloud over me when I think of such matters. But I know that my crown was well spent, for the man had the look of a very holy person. As to the other, there was naught holy about him that I could see, and it would be cheaper for me to pray for myself than to give a crown to one who spent his days in digging for lettuces. Ere Alan could answer, there swung round the curve of the road a lady's carriage, drawn by three horses abreast, with a postillion upon the outer one. Very fine and rich it was, with beams painted and gilt, wheels and spokes carved in strange figures, and over all an arched cover of red and white tapestry. Beneath its shade there sat a stout and elderly lady in a pink coat hardy, leaning back among a pile of cushions, and plucking out her eyebrows with a small pair of silver tweezers. None could seem more safe and secure, and at her ease, than this lady. Yet here also was a symbol of human life for in an instant even as alan reined aside to let the carriage pass a wheel flew out from among its fellows and over it all toppled carving tapestry and gilt 
in one wild heap, with the horses plunging, the postillion shouting, and the ladies screaming from within. In an instant Alan and John were on foot, and had lifted her forth, all in a shake with fear, but little the worse for her mischance. "'No, no, no, well, now woe worth me!' she cried. "'And ill fallen Michael Eastover of Romsey, for I told him that the pin was loose, and yet he must needs gainsay me, like the foolish daff that he is.' "'I trust that you have taken no hurt, my fair lady,' said Alan, conducting her to the bank upon which John had already placed a cushion. "'Nay, I have no scathe, though I have lost my silver tweezers. Now, lack a day, did God ever put breath into such a fool as Michael Eastover of Rumsey? But I am much beholden to you, gentle sirs. Soldiers, ya, as one may readily see. I am myself a soldier's daughter,' she added, casting a somewhat languishing glance at John, "'and my heart ever goes out to a brave man.' "'We are indeed fresh from Spain,' quoth Ellen. "'From Spain, say you? Ah, ah, it was an ill and sorry thing that so many should throw away the lives that heaven gave them. In sooth, it is bad for those who fall, but worse for those who bide behind. I have but now bid farewell to one who hath lost all in this cruel war. And how that lady? She is a young damsel of these parts, and she goes now into a nunnery. Alack, it is not a year since she was the fairest maid from Avon to Itchen, and now it was more than I could abide to wait at Rumsey Nunnery to see her put the white veil upon her face, for she was made for a wife, and not for the cloister. Did you ever, gentle sir, hear of a body of men called the White Company over yonder? Surely so, cried both the comrades. Her father was the leader of it, and her lover served under him as squire. News hath come that not one of the company was left alive. And so, poor lamb, she hath— Lady! cried Alan, catching his breath. Is it the Lady Maud Loring of whom you speak? It is, in sooth. Maud? And in a nunnery? Did, then, the thought of her father's death so move her? Her father? cried the lady, smiling. Nay, oh, Maud is a good daughter, but I think it was this young golden-haired squire, of whom I have heard, who has made her turn her back upon the world. And I stand talking here, cried Alan wildly. Come, John, come! Rushing to his horse, he swung himself into the saddle, and was off down the road in a rolling cloud of dust as fast as his good steed could bear him. Great had been the rejoicing amid the Rumsey nuns, when the Lady Maud Loring had craved admission into their order. For was she not sole child and heiress of the old knight, with farms and fiefs which she could bring to the great nunnery? Long and earnest had been the talks of the gaunt Lady Abbess, in which she had conjured the young novice to turn forever from the world, and to rest her bruised heart under the broad and peaceful shelter of the church. And now, when all was settled, and when Abbess and Lady Superior had had their will, it was but fitting that some pomp and show should mark the glad occasion. Hence it was that the good burghers of Rumsey were all in the streets, that gay flags and flowers brightened the path from the nunnery to the church, and that a long procession wound up to the old arched door, leading up the bride to these spiritual nuptials. There was lay Sister Agatha, with the high gold crucifix, and the three incense-bearers, and the two-and-twenty garbed in white, who cast flowers upon either side of them, and sang sweetly the while. Then, with four attendants, came the novice, her drooping head wreathed with white blossoms, and behind, the abbess and her council of older nuns, who were already counting in their minds whether their own bailiff could manage the farms of Twynham, or whether a reeve would be needed beneath him, to draw the utmost from these new possessions which this young novice was about to bring them. 
But alas for plots and plans, when love and youth and nature, and, above all, fortune, are arrayed against them. Who is this travel-stained youth who dares to ride so madly through the lines of staring burghers? Why does he fling himself from his horse and stare so strangely about him? See how he has rushed through the incense-bearers, thrust aside lay sister Agatha, scattered the two-and-twenty damsels who sang so sweetly, and he stands before the novice with his hands outstretched, and his face shining, and the light of love in his grey eyes. Her foot is on the very lintel of the church, and yet he bars the way, and she... She thinks no more of the wise words and holy read of the Lady Abbess, but she hath given a sobbing cry, and hath fallen forward with his arms around her drooping body, and her wet cheek upon his breast. A sorry sight this for the gaunt Abbess, and ill lesson for the stainless two-and-twenty, who have ever been taught that the way of nature is the way of sin. But Maud and Alan care little for this. A dank, cold air comes from the black arch before them. Without, the sun shines bright and the birds are singing amid the ivy on the drooping beeches. Their choice is made, and they turn away hand in hand, with their backs to the darkness and their faces to the light. Very quiet was the wedding in the old priory church at Christchurch, where Father Christopher read the service, and there were few to see save the Lady Loring and John and a dozen bowmen from the castle. The Lady of Twynham had drooped and pined for weary months, so that her face was harsher and less comely than before. Yet she still hoped on, for her lord had come through so many dangers that she could scarce believe that he might be stricken down at last. It had been her wish to start for Spain and to search for him, but Alan had persuaded her to let him go in her place. There was much to look after, now that the lands of Minstead were joined to those of Twynham, and Alan had promised her that if she would but bide with his wife, he would never come back to Hampshire again until he had gained some news, good or ill, of her lord and lover. The yellow cog had been engaged with Goodwin Hortain in command, and a month after the wedding Alan rode down to Buckler's Hard to see if she had come round yet from Southampton. On the way he passed the fishing village of Pitt's Deep, and marked that a little crayer or brig was tacking off the land, as though about to anchor there. On his way back, as he rode towards the village, he saw that she was indeed anchored, and that many boats were around her, bearing cargo to the shore. A bow-shot from Pitt's Deep, there was an inn a little back from the road, very large and widespread, with a great green bush hung upon a pole from one of the upper windows. At this window he marked, as he rode up, that a man was seated, who appeared to be craning his neck in his direction. Alan was still looking up at him, when a woman came rushing from the open door of the inn, and made as though she would climb a tree, looking back the while with a laughing face. Wondering what these doings might mean, Alan tied his horse to a tree, and was walking amid the trunks towards the inn, when there shot from the entrance a second woman, who also made for the trees. Close at her heels came a burly brown-faced man, who leaned against the doorpost, and laughed loudly with his hand to his side. "'Ah, my bell!' he cried. "'And is it thus you treat me? Ah, mes petites! I swear by these finger-bones that I would not hurt a hair of your pretty heads. But I have been among the black panem, and by my hilt it does me good to look at your English cheeks. Come drink a stoop of muscadine with me, mes anges, for my heart is warm to be among ye again.' the sight of the man Alan stood staring, 
but at the sound of his voice such a thrill of joy bubbled up in his heart that he had to bite his lip to keep himself from shouting outright. But a deeper pleasure yet was in store. Even as he looked, the window above was pushed outwards, and the voice of the man whom he had seen there came out from it. "'Aylward!' cried the voice. "'I have seen just now a very worthy person come down the road, though my eyes could scarce discern whether he carried coat-armour. I pray you to wait upon him, and tell him that a very humble knight of England abides here, so that if he be in need of advancement, or have any small vow upon his soul, or desire to exalt his lady, I may help him to accomplish it.' Aylward, at this order, came shuffling forward amid the trees, and in an instant the two men were clinging in each other's arms, laughing and shouting, and patting each other in their delight while old Sir Nigel came running with his sword, under the impression that some small bickering had broken out, only to embrace and be embraced himself, until all three were hoarse with their questions and outcries and congratulations. On their journey home through the woods, Alan learnt their wondrous story, how, when Sir Nigel came to his senses, he with his fellow-captive had been hurried to the coast, and conveyed by sea to their captor's castle, how, upon the way, they had been taken by a Barbary rover, and how they exchanged their light captivity for a seat on a galley bench, and hard labour at the pirate's oars. How, in the port at Barbary, Sir Nigel had slain the Moorish captain, and had swum, with Aylward, to a small coaster which they had taken, and so made their way to England, with a rich cargo to reward them for their toils. All this Alan listened to, until the dark keep of Twynham towered above them in the gloaming, and they saw the red sun lying athwart the rippling Avon. No need to speak of the glad hearts at Twynham Castle that night, nor the rich offerings from out that Moorish cargo which found their way to the chapel of Father Christopher. Sir Nigel Loring lived for many years, full of honour and laden with every blessing. He rode no more to the wars, but he found his way to every jousting within thirty miles and the Hampshire youth treasured it as their highest honour when a word of praise fell from him as to their management of their horses, or their breaking of their lances. So he lived, and so he died, the most revered and the happiest man in all his native shire. For Sir Alan Edrickson, and for his beautiful bride, the future had also naught but what was good. Twice he fought in France, and came back each time laden with honours. A high place at court was given to him, and he spent many years at Windsor, under the second Richard and the fourth Henry, where he received the honour of the garter, and won the name of being a brave soldier, a true-hearted gentleman, and a great lover and patron of every art and science which refines or ennobles life. As to John, he took unto himself a village maid, and settled in Lyndhurst, where his five thousand crowns made him the richest franklin for many miles around. For many years he drank his ale every night at the Pied Merlin, which was now kept by his friend Aylward, who had wedded the good widow to whom he had committed his plunder. The strong men and the bowmen of the country round used to drop in there of an evening, to wrestle a fall with John, or to shoot a round with Aylward, but though a silver shilling was to be the prize of the victory, it has never been reported that any man earned much money in that fashion. So they lived, these men, in their own lusty, cheery fashion, rude and rough, but honest, kindly, and true. Let us thank God if we have outgrown their vices, and let us pray to God that we may ever hold their virtues. The sky may darken, and the clouds may gather, and again 
the day may come when Britain may have sore need of her children on whatever shore of the sea they be found. Shall they not muster at her call? End of chapter 38 End of the White Company by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle